It was late afternoon when he heard it. At first, he heard it off in the distance. He couldn't quite make out what they were saying. All of the people around him were doing the exact same thing. They were wondering, what could it be? What was going on? He could hear the shouting, but he couldn't make out what they were saying. So he listened so intently. He looked off into the distance, but still he couldn't see anything. What was going on? The noises, the voices, they were getting louder. Where were they coming from? What was going on? He couldn't take it anymore. The intrigue inside of him was too much. Something inside of him was nudging and pushing him. He had to find out what was going on. He had to know. And in a hurry, he took and he slid his feet into his sandals. He put his cloak around himself and off he headed to figure out what was going on. And as he made his way towards that noise, he found that he wasn't alone. There were others headed in the exact same direction as he was as well. He could tell that this was no ordinary day. No, this day was completely different than any other day. And as he got closer, the multitude of the voices became more and more evident. Finally, he got up to the top of a hill, and that's when he saw it. He saw more people gathered that day than he could have ever imagined. He could hear the shouting. He could tell that they weren't shouting at each other. But what were they saying? He knew he needed to get closer. And that's when someone came running up right behind him. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Did I hear what? He thought the minds just started running. He was intrigued. But before he could ask them, they were off running down the hill. He followed them. And as he got a little bit closer, that's when someone slapped him with a, a palm tree and said, hey, come with me. He had to know what was going on. And that's when he saw the unthinkable. When somebody right in front of him took off their cloak and they laid it on the ground. He's wondering what is going on. And that's when he heard in unison, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And right across the way from where he was standing, he heard someone yell at the top of their lungs, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He was overflowing with emotion. What was going on? How is that? What is going on? That's when he saw him. And that's when he saw him. At first, it was just a silhouette in the way the sun was coming. And as that man came slowly closer to where the part of the crowd where they had gathered, there was a gentleness on the face of that man. And that man approached them riding of all things, a donkey. And he had to know, who was that man? The emotion of the moment had overtaken some in the crowd, but he had to know who was that man. And he could still hear people chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He had to know. And that's when he finally heard. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Could you imagine what it might have been like to be there that day? What it would have been like to see all of the people of Jerusalem gathering to the city gate to see Jesus triumphantly enter into that city. Could you imagine? 
Could you imagine the sound of people and voice after voice after voice chanting Hosanna, Hosanna at the top of their lungs? What an amazing day that must have been. I have this picture in my office that, of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And, and it's a cartooniture, but I think that the artist captured that moment in such a beautiful way. As you look off in the, the crowd of the people, do you see the joy? Do you see the exuberance on their face? Imagine what it must have been like. And then you see Jesus. Jesus, the Savior of the world, riding in on a donkey with a gentleness, but yet a confidence as he comes in to that community. If you have your Bibles with, me, with you today, will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21? Today we're looking at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his final week of life here on this earth. And it's a week filled with tremendous excitement, like the triumphant entry that I just described. Powerful teaching, amazing disappointment and betrayal, and it culminated with Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection three days later. We're in week three of a series that we call God's Grand Story. As we're walking through the entire New Testament, um, we've covered Jesus coming, Jesus ministering, and then how today Jesus dies and lives his final week in ministry. And so um, let me set up the text for you today. As we look at Jesus, he at this point is at the peak of his popularity. He is now ready to declare that he is, in fact, Israel's long-awaited king. But the problem is, as we get into the text this morning, is the people were expecting one kind of king, and Jesus was coming as a completely different type of king. So follow along with me, Matthew chapter 21, and here's what God's word says. I'll get there in my Bible. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed let me set up the text for you with some historical context to really understand what's going on in the scene. It was Passover time, and Jerusalem, the city, the big city there, and the whole surrounding neighborhood was crowded with pilgrims that were coming in to celebrate the Passover. In fact, one commentator um, talks about how about 30 years after Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, a Roman governor wanted to find out how many lambs were being slain for the Passover celebration. And they found that that year, this is, remember, 30 years after Jesus' death, that there were 250,000 lambs that were slain for the Passover celebration. And the law at the time said that if you were going to celebrate the Passover and murder a lamb, that there had to be at least 10 adults there or more. So you do the math, 30 years after Jesus' death, they had over 2.5 million people gathering together to celebrate the Passover. Now understand that uh, in the culture, if you lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you were required, if you were a Jew, to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But if you were a Jew, you also, if you lived even further along, if you could, you wanted to be there in that situation. So understand, there were a lot of people there. And understand this, that Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem was a very deliberate claim of Jesus 
of being the king, the king that they expected. Now, by making this claim, Jesus was foretelling or carrying out what we read about in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And what it was, it was a prophecy, something telling of what is to come. And listen to what Zechariah said. I actually just read part of it out of Matthew. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt. See, understand that everything that Jesus did was purposeful and deliberate. Now, when we look at the context historically in the ancient Middle East, when kings would ride into a community, when they rode in on a donkey, what they were saying is, I come in peace. But if they were to come in on a horse, in essence, they were coming in, riding in on what would be called a war horse. And the fact that Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, and it talks about it in the scripture, that it wasn't just any donkey, but it was a baby donkey, one that had never been ridden before, was highly significant. Another example of how Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem further fulfilled that which was said of how the Messiah would come. So you have to understand here, everything that Jesus did was very, very purposeful and deliberate. And the people that were there that day, they were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting a Messiah that would come in and take over all their political adversaries, free them from slavery, and give them everything they wanted. But that's not who Jesus was coming to be. In fact, it's the first fill-in on your outline this morning, is Jesus was coming not to rule over the people, but to rule the people's Jesus was coming not to rule the people, but to rule the people's hearts. See, when you think about this scene, Jesus could not have chosen a more dramatic moment. He entered into a city that was surging with people with a religious expectation. And God's timing is absolutely perfect. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was not a sudden or impulsive action. It's not like all of a sudden Jesus said, hey, Let's throw a party. Let's go cruise into Jerusalem and see what happens. No, Jesus had planned this in advance. If you go back just a couple of verses in verse 3, Jesus says this to his disciples. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. See, Jesus was a leader of order. Jesus had made all the arrangements ahead of time and even gave what I would describe as a password of sense to the owner of that donkey and that colt that when his disciples came, it was time. So now understand this, that Jesus walking or coming into Jerusalem was an act of glorious defiance and unmatched courage. And what I mean by that is this. By this time in Jesus' ministry, there was a price on his head. The religious leaders hated him. They hated what he said, and they hated what he stand for. And so when he was going to Jerusalem, he was going in a time. Now, if he was really, if he was really just some other man, if he was somebody that wasn't as important, wasn't carrying out prophecy, you would think that if someone wants to cut off your head, if somebody's going to say all kinds of lies about you, do you think you'd go down the main street? Or do you think you'd go through the back alleys? Or you'd maybe even avoid the city altogether. But what Jesus did is Jesus did something so significant is that in that day, And in that time in Jerusalem, Jesus was declaring as loud and as obvious as possible as he could do that he was the great I am, that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised Savior that they all had been waiting for. And when you think about this scene, when you think about this scene, it's absolutely breathtaking 
to think of a man who had a price upon his head, a man who knew that in a matter of days he would be treated as a criminal, subjected to pain and crucifixion. But yet that man deliberately rode into the city in such a way as though every single eye in that community would see him. And it's impossible for us to exaggerate the sheer courage and the depth of love of Jesus in this story. Remember, Jesus was coming not to rule over the people, but to rule the people's hearts. And the people that were in Jerusalem were expecting a Savior much different than Jesus. They were waiting for someone who would be a powerful and mighty warrior, a king that would rule over them rather than one that would transform them. They were looking for someone that would carry out their will, their desires, their plans. But that's not who Jesus was. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus came to this earth to establish a very different type of kingdom. One of love. One of forgiveness. One of compassion. And what the people didn't realize, that if they followed after Jesus, if they trusted in him, not only would he take care of all of the circumstances they found themselves in, but rather he would also change their hearts from the inside And when I think about this scene, when I think about what it was like in Jerusalem that day, I think about the joy on so many people's faces as they welcomed Jesus with open arms. But yet when I look at Scripture, I also must acknowledge that many of those same people who were chanting, Hosanna, 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 were the same people that in just a matter of days would be screaming insults and saying, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then I think of today. And I wonder how many people in 2017 would gather at the city gate to welcome in the Messiah. Would there be the same expectation? Would there be the same excitement? Or are we, as a people group, so self-absorbed that we would miss altogether the greatest thing that man has ever seen or received? Do we live in a culture? Do we live in a society that the good news of the gospel has become old news. Where people don't live in such a way that they're eagerly anticipating the Messiah. The people have put their hope in everything else, technology, medicine, you name it, rather than the God that created the heavens and the earth. So what about you? Are you actively seeking the Messiah? What type of savior are you looking for? Are you looking for a conquering king or a humble savior? Have you been looking for a savior that will carry out your will, your desires, almost like a genie in a bottle? Or have you looked to the one who has the power to transform you from the inside out? I want to expand our conversation here for a little bit more. As I think of my life, I look back fondly to the day that I truly gave my life over to Jesus Christ. In fact, it happened in what is soon to be our community center. I knew of Jesus before then, but that day was the day that I truly said, I am going to know Jesus. And I remember the joy, I remember the exuberation, even as the speaker said, stand up if you give your life to Jesus. And I remember standing up, and I stood in there, and I said, why are you standing up, you idiot? Sit back down. But yet I remember, I remember the joy that was on my heart. 
It was an unstoppable joy. I was so eager to learn, so eager to share, and I was so eager to be called a Christian. Really, when I think about it in light of our text this morning, that day was Jesus' triumphant entry into my heart. But yet, just as those that were gathered there for Jesus' triumphant entry, that their joy and exuberance kind of waned, in the same way that's happened in my life. It's like life and stress and even our culture was pulling and dragging and pulling, so much so that that joy just kind of slowly Please hear me. I'm not saying that a commitment to Jesus is all about what or how we feel. What I'm saying is that at some point in our lives, at some point in our pursuit of Jesus, that triumphant joy when Jesus entered our hearts can get stale. It can kind of get like it's in the distant past in the rear view mirror of our lives. But yet I think, but yet I think of when I'm around somebody that first gives their life to Jesus. And how they are so excited, how they're so filled with joy, it's contagious. But then I also think about the enemy. And I truly believe that it's a trick of the enemy to lie and distract and speak doubts into people's lives after they accept Jesus. Because he knows that that joy in their hearts is absolutely contagious. So here's where they come together. Are you, my friend? If you are a Christ follower, are you walking in unstoppable, triumphant joy in your life today? Or has life, has age, has stress, even our culture just sucked the joy right out of you? And the question that follows is one that I would challenge you not to ignore, but to embrace. What needs to change in your life today? So that Jesus' triumphant entry into your heart continues to show itself in unstoppable joy. Said differently, what have you embraced that is stealing your joy and attention from the King of Kings? This morning as we move from the story of Jesus' triumphant entry into the rest of the week of Jesus' last life of ministry. Let me tell you, there are so many nuggets and so many truths that if you call yourself a Christ follower, or even if you're just checking out this God thing, I would challenge you to learn, to read, to wrestle with. And so this next week, for those of you that are in one of our community groups as we go through God's grand story, let me challenge you. The devotional readings this week are fantastic. Make sure that you set aside some time to read it. Let me challenge you to take another step. That this week, why don't you take the time to read the gospel accounts of Jesus' last week here on this earth? They're absolutely amazing when you look at it from the different perspectives of the different authors. And it's a sad thing that quite often we leave these stories to Lent or until Easter because they are so powerful for us to learn and so powerful for them to get into our hearts so that we can live them out. The second story that I want to spend our time together on is the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. The symbolism and the sheer humility in which Jesus demonstrates is absolutely amazing. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me three more books in your Bible to John chapter 13. It's in your outline as well. But setting the scene, we are now in 
four days later after Jesus' triumphant entry to what is known as the Last Supper, the celebration of the Passover meal. And once again, as we look at the text, we see that Jesus had already put things into motion prior to the event. We see in the three other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke how Jesus had instructed his disciples to go in and to find a certain man who had prepared an upper room for them to celebrate the Passover feast. While those other three Gospels talk about Jesus' preparation, John shares with us really what could be described for us as Jesus' humility in action. And that's where my second point for you today is. It's quite profound, but one that we need to wrestle with is Jesus came to serve, not be served. Jesus came to serve and not be served. I love, as I read scripture, I love to put myself in the text to imagine with my mind's eye, what did it look like? What did it feel like to be there in that moment? So in John's gospel, he tells us that the evening meal was about to be served. And, and as we look at it, we've seen paintings of the Lord's Supper. Um, one of the things that we have to understand historically is that there might have been a big table there, but they didn't sit, the disciples and Jesus didn't sit on chairs as we do today. They would have sat in that time on the floor, on pads, or something that we would describe as pillows. So will you for just a moment indulge me? In your mind's eye, will you picture what that upper room looked like? As you picture it in your mind's eye, was it a big room? Was it a small room? Was it a rectangle? What was that room like? And as you picture it in your mind's eye, what did it sound like? Was there hustling, bustling? Was it quiet? What did it smell like as the evening meal was about to be served? What did it smell like? And as you picture it in your mind's eye, how do you feel being there in that upper room? And see, for me, as I picture it in my mind's eye, I picture Jesus and his disciples spread around the table in that upper room. And I picture a room, it's not too big, but yet it's not too small. There's enough room to kind of make your way around the table. And as I picture it, Scripture doesn't say it, this is just how I picture it. I picture that it's kind of noisy at the time. And I picture the different disciples talking and interacting with each other. And that's when Jesus does something so remarkable. Look at John chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. It says, so Jesus got up from the table. He took off his robe and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And he poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now scripture doesn't say. It doesn't say when the disciples realized what Jesus was about to do. But as I imagine the scene, I imagine it a little bit loud and them talking to each other. And I imagine Jesus getting up from where he was and slowly but with purpose making his way over to the door. And as I imagine the scene, I picture Jesus kneeling down and grabbing a basin. And as he grabs a pitcher of water, I can imagine the sound of that water slowly going into the basin. And as I picture the scene, I also picture one disciple after another, after another, What's Jesus doing? What is he doing? What is he doing? And I imagine that there's a silence in the room. And I imagine that Jesus walks with that basin of water and slowly goes over to the first disciple. Scripture doesn't say who that disciple was. But imagine for a moment how it would have felt if you were that disciple. Imagine how it would have felt as you were sitting there. And Jesus, the Messiah, 
your savior, your rabbi, your friend, came down and knelt before you. And imagine how it would have felt as Jesus took that basin of water and put it under your foot. And as the Messiah took and reached out his hand and took your dirty, calloused foot and started washing it. Imagine the emotions that would have gone through your mind. As I think about it, part of me would be embarrassed that Jesus would be touching my dirty foot. And part of me would be overwhelmed with emotion and excitement and not even understanding all that was going on. Imagine what it was like to be there in that moment. And then there was Peter. And then there was Peter. In the text, we get an insight into Peter's mindset. And imagine for a moment you're Peter. Peter's sitting there and he's watching as Jesus goes from one disciple to another disciple to another disciple, and he washes their feet. See, now from Peter's perspective, he had grown used to Jesus doing and saying completely crazy and unpredictable things. But what Jesus was doing in this situation, from Peter's perspective, was completely wrong. Jesus was the last person in that room that should be washing feet. Because in all of Peter's life, he had been taught that feet were dishonorable members of the body. The feet were usually dirty, often smelly, and among the most likely of any part of one's body to come in contact with things that the law said were unclean. And from Peter's perspective, from Peter's perspective, the only people outside of immediate family feet were supposed to be washed by were only by slaves or servants. And from Peter's perspective, the only people that should be doing it were ideally non-Jews, so as not to subject God's chosen people to such humiliation. And from Peter's perspective, one was never, one was never to insult an honored person by pointing their foot at them. But here was the Messiah, the most honored Jew to ever walk the face of the earth, stripped like a common slave with a towel wrapped around his waist, knowingly and choosing to touch the unclean feet of his disciples. For Peter, this was completely backwards. If anything, Peter should have been the one down there kneeling before Jesus, washing his feet. And as I picture this scene, and as I picture all that's going on, I picture that when Jesus came to Peter, he smiled at him and he reached his hand out to grab Peter's foot. And as I picture the scene, Scripture says that Peter didn't allow Jesus. I picture Peter pulling his feet back and saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus loved Peter. Jesus knew what Peter was thinking, so he replied to Peter, Peter, you don't understand what un right now, but afterwards, Peter, you will understand. And Peter, unwilling to subject Jesus to such dishonor, says, you shall never Wash my feet, Jesus. And as I picture the scene, as I picture what's going on, I picture Jesus' smiling face slowly disappearing. And a sternness, but with love, comes on Jesus' face. And I imagine Jesus looking at him, and he responds as Scripture records, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And the shock in that moment, it would have stunned Peter for a second. Because he was trying to preserve his master's honor. But what Jesus was essentially telling him was, unless you let me take on your dishonor, 
unless you let me bring on your uncleanliness onto me, Peter, you cannot be my disciple. Peter, you cannot be called one of my followers. And Peter didn't quite understand all that Jesus meant. But Peter would leave no doubt in his trust in and his love for Jesus by responding, Lord, not my feet, but also my hand and my heads. Peter was looking for a complete purification, complete cleaning, and joy had to have radiated from Jesus' eyes and face as he replied and as he washed Peter's feet. The one who was bathed need not wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And as I picture this scene, I picture Jesus pausing for just a moment. And I picture him looking directly into Peter's eyes. A man that Jesus knew was unknowingly about to face some of the most difficult, grievous, and glorious three days of his life as he knew, as Jesus knew, Peter was going to watch all that was going to happen to Jesus in these matter of hours. And Peter would benefit from a reassurance that only Jesus could give. And Jesus says something so profound, and Peter, you are clean. And as I picture the scene, I picture Jesus' eyes drop from Peter's face back down to his feet, and he resumes washing them. Notice a couple things about the text here this morning. Did you catch the humility in which Jesus walked through this story? Never once did Jesus take it upon himself to say, look at the significance of what I am doing for you guys. Never once did Jesus say, I am acting like a slave to you guys. You should be serving me, and I should be served by you. No, Jesus never said that. Jesus modeled for his disciples what humble servant leadership looks like. So what about you? As I make this intensely personal and practical, what about you? In what areas of your life do you need more humility? And how does pride, how does your ego impact the lives of those that you've been called to love? I don't want to just glaze over those questions because we all deal with pride. Be it pride in our abilities, pride in our spirituality, pride in our looks, pride in our finances, or you fill in the blank of whatever pride you deal with. But the question for you is this. Is your pride off-putting to others? Does your pride keep you from being able to love others deeply? Look at verse 10 in the text. Look at what Jesus' response to Peter. He says, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for his feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean. And there's one last phrase here, five very significant words that we can't skip over this morning. And Jesus says, but not all of Go up just a few verses to verse 2. It says this, that the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now understand this. Nowhere in the text does it say that Jesus skipped over Judas. No. Jesus, the Savior, he took the time to wash the feet of the man who he knew would betray him in a matter of hours with a kiss. Hear this. Jesus doesn't discriminate with his love. No, he humbly poured out all that he had to each person that was there that day. And so what about you? Do you humbly give of yourself even to those that have betrayed or hurt you? Do you 
offer the same type of love that Jesus gave so freely to Judas. And let me step a little closer to your heart. When was the last time that you allowed Jesus to wash your heart, to wash your feet? Where you allowed Jesus into the parts of your heart, into the parts of your life that are so dirty and callous, the parts of your heart that you don't let anyone into because you've been hurt or you're afraid that it's going to get too messy or you're afraid that you're going to get rejected. When was the last time that you let Jesus into that part of your heart and you allowed him to wash you from the inside out? See, friends, hear this this morning and hear it loud and clear. Jesus wants to get past the mask of your clean exterior. Jesus wants to get past that and get into your dirty, callous parts of your life. But the question is for you, are you willing? And that question is as much for those of you that call yourself a Christ follower as those of you that are here today, maybe for baby dedication, or maybe you're just trying to check out this God thing. The question is the same for every single one of you. And as I picture Jesus doing this, I picture Jesus on a bended knee with a basin full of water coming up to you and saying, will you trust me? And I picture Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the person who wants to be so close to you and so intimate to you that he knows every one of your hurts and pains. That on bended knee, he looks you right in the eye with the only tenderness that Jesus can offer, willing to wipe the tears off of your face, to break down the walls of hurt that have been put upon you or you've put upon yourself, and to take all of the burdens behind those walls upon himself. Let me take it a step further. What is keeping you? What is keeping you from receiving true forgiveness in your life? And I know there's some of you that would call yourself a Christian. You'd say, Scott, I received forgiveness. I received the forgiveness from what I did yesterday. No, I'm talking about that major thing. I'm talking about that thing that you know intellectually you've received forgiveness, but in your heart you haven't forgiven yourself. That you walk with shame, that you walk with the burden of the choices that you've made or the choices that somebody else has made in your life. Be it that you walked out on your family because there was another woman. Be it that you walked out on your kids because you thought you'd be happier with another family. Maybe you chose to walk down the road of adultery. Maybe you were molested as a child. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you chose to make sure you were happy and chose to go down the road of abortion. I don't know what it is, but I know this. I know that there are some of you that are here today that are walking with that burden as though it's right here on your shoulder. I know that there are others of you that are here today that you were walking with that shame and you think that everybody that looks at you is thinking exactly that when they look at you. But they're not. Here's what I know. And I know without a shadow of a doubt in my life, and I know that Jesus wants it in your life as well, is he wants to give you that true forgiveness so that you're not wrapped up in the burden of sin, that you're not caught in that bondage, so that you can feel that true forgiveness in your life. Scripture says that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. By saying there's no condemnation, that means there's no guilt. 
That means there's no shame, that there's no blame. Jesus took all of that, your shame, your guilt, your sin, all of it onto himself so that you and I could have freedom from all of the stupid choices we've made and the stupid choices other people have made. I can't spend our time together today and talk about Jesus' last week here on this earth without coming to the culmination moment. The culmination of what the entire New Testament led up to and really when you look at it, how the Old Testament led to this place of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Because when you look at it and you understand the story, Jesus took your sin. Jesus took your stupidity. Jesus took all of those burdens upon himself upon that cross to conquer the grave, to free you from all of that stuff so that you could be made right with God and so that you could walk in freedom. Matthew chapter 28 says this, after Jesus had conquered the grave. Listen to what the angel says. It says, I know you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was laying, and now quickly go and tell his disciples what Jesus has done, or that Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus did what no person could do. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He carried your burden and my burden upon himself so that we could be free. Friend, the tomb is empty. The guilt is gone. You just have to choose to give it over to him. The last question that I have for you this morning is, will you give yourself and follow Jesus? Will you pray with me? God, we come to this place today with so many different stories, so many different backgrounds, but yet, God, every one of our stories, you want to be in the middle of. And so, Father, I, I, I want to speak first to the group of people, God, that would call themselves Christians. Those that, God, come here on a, a weekly basis, monthly basis, whatever it be, that you brought them here today. And yet, God, if they were honest with themselves and honest with you, they would have to acknowledge that, God, they do things sometimes in their own strength. They try to solve their situation. They try to take the sin, the stress, the blame off of themselves, um, God, in their own ways, their own coping mechanisms. But yet, God, I thank you that your word is so clear, that you came, God, to, to remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. That's how far you want to remove those from us. And so, God, I, I know that there's at least one person here today. That, God, as you put this on my heart this last week, that there would be one person that needs to hear this message. And, God, for that one person that your Holy Spirit is stirring in right now, God, will you speak into their hearts in only a way that you can to remind them that there is no more blame, that there is no more shame, that, God, you have removed their decisions, you have removed their transgressions from them, and that they are completely free. And God, I pray for that person or those people that even today as that echoes in their hearts. That God, that they will walk in the true freedom that comes through the gospel. The true freedom that only comes from you. And God, I also know that there are people here today. Some that are just checking out this God thing. Others that just wanted to see cute babies on the platform for, for their family or for their friends. But yet God, you brought them here for a very specific purpose. Way bigger than a baby dedication. And God, as they sit here today and as they hear a story of, of your triumphant entry into Jerusalem and, and how, God, you would uh, use your son Jesus to wash your disciples' free, feet and to hear about forgiveness and freedom. And God, as your Holy Spirit is stirring in them, they're saying, I need that. I want that. God, I pray that as you're stirring right now in this room, that God, forever that person is or whoever those people are, that in the silence of their hearts, they will cry out to you and say, God, I need you. Give me that forgiveness. 
And just as Peter didn't all understand that Jesus was saying in that moment of washing his disciples' feet, um, Father, I, I pray for that person that might not understand all what it means to follow after Jesus, but your Holy Spirit is stern and saying, come, follow me, the God that they will follow after you. That they will choose to take that step because, God, you live. You live today, you live in each one of our hearts, and you live in our lives. And so if you were one of those people here today, that even after hearing a message like this and, and God wrecks you from the inside out, I, I pray that you'll talk to the friend that brought you, that you'll talk to whoever it is that you came to church with, or that you'd come and talk with me, Pastor Brad, Pastor Derek, any of the people up on the platform. We'd love to tell you more about what a relationship with Jesus looks like and how you can be free. But God, as I think about the stories we've talked about today, I thank you, God. I thank you for the culmination of the gospel story. I thank you, God, for the triumphant entry you've had in our hearts. And I pray, God, now that as we worship you, we can worship you freely because you live, because you are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of all of adoration. We love you, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said.